Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson, Assistant Professor of Pastoral Ministry at Spurgeon College and Author-in-Residence at Midwestern Seminary. It's a stormy day here in Kansas City. Got thunder clouds rolling in. I'm still in the home bunker, but we're cooking up some fresh content just for you. Um, I don't know about you, but when you're on social media or listening into other conversations among Christians from different tribes or denominations and schools of thought, do you ever get discouraged by the way everything is kind of absolutized? How, how uh, what should be considered open-handed issues get turned into closed-handed issues? Well, a lot of the anger and vitriol that we see in the Christian sphere today I'm convinced is connected to a problem addressed in a new book by our guest today. In in theology, just as in battle, some hills are worth dying on and others are not. But how do we know which ones? When should doctrine divide and when should unity prevail? Just as a, a medic on a battlefield treats the severely wounded first and then moves on to the less serious injuries, we must prioritize doctrine in order of importance. Pastor Gavin Ortland implores us to cultivate humility as we prioritize doctrine into four ranks, essential, urgent, important, and unimportant, so that we will be as effective as possible at advancing the gospel in our time. Gavin Ortland is the senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Ojai in Ojai, California. Am I saying that right, Gavin? Yeah, you got it right. All right. And oh, he has an MDiv from Covenant Theological Seminary and his PhD from Fuller Theological Seminary. And he's authored a couple of books, including a great book on theological retrieval, which came out last year. And the new book we're going to talk about today, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, The Case for Theological Triage. Gavin, thanks so much for coming on the program, brother. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we're going to uh, get into your book here shortly, uh, but first I have to ask you for some autobiographical insight here, right? So you come from a family of Presbyterians, do you not? <laughs> I, I know where this is going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pado Baptist, man, infant sprinklers and baby dunkers. <laughs> I know, I know, and it's even worse because I became a Baptist myself while I was at a Presbyterian seminary as well. So, well, oh man, so that's what I want to ask you: How are you the lone Ortland Baptist? Or, or, well, are you the lone, and 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 how did you become that way? I actually don't know where my oldest brother Eric stands on this. He's Anglican. But okay. I think he's leaned toward more of a credo Baptist view uh, himself and his own convictions. So I, I can't, I don't know exactly where he's currently at. Um, but I, I became Baptist. I did kind of grow up in Presbyterian churches and uh, really had a great experience in uh, my upbringing in, in the PCA. But when I was in seminary, I, I, you know, I knew this was an issue that would affect where I could get ordained. And, um, so I just did an intensive study on it. I hadn't really thought about it at a, at a deep level before. And that's just where my convictions came out. So it wasn't an emotional issue. It was just kind of working through the scripture. Uh, and that's where the chips fell for me. And, um, so I've been a Baptist ever since. <laughs> well, praise the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, the book is called finding the right hills to die on. Um, we have talked a lot about theological triage on this podcast before. Um, when, when, when I don't have a guest, uh, my regular <coughs> co-host is Ronnie Kurtz. He's a PhD student and serves at Midwestern as well. And we employ this 
uh, in, in, in numerous episodes, especially as people ask, we do these mailbag episodes where people ask kind of theological, spiritual, ministry-related questions. And we end up bringing this into play quite a bit, especially as it, as it plays out in the local church level. But for listeners who, who might be new to the concept of theological triage, why don't you explain it a little bit for us? Okay. Well, I'll just explain briefly what it is and then maybe just a brief comment about kind of the heart behind it, because it's not, I think sometimes people hear that word and it seems like a technical matter that's just for seminary students or something like that. Um, But it's just a a metaphor from a medical context where when a, a medic or a doctor is trying to prioritize injuries, they put them in different categories. And the reason for that is that you want to treat the most important issues first. Because if you start off and just treat, you know, the first person you see, certain people may die because you're uh, treating a less urgent issue. And I think Al Mohler was the first one that I know of who used this for uh, doctrines and trying to prioritize different doctrines. And the heart behind it is just uh, recognizing that, number one, um, not every doctrine is of the same level of importance. Um, And even in the New Testament, you have passages where Paul um, calls for a lot of patience with each other. You know, you think of Romans 14 type passages where he's saying, hey, you need to accept one another and and have forbearance toward each other. At the same time, you have the the same person, the Apostle Paul, um, who's willing to take a stand. And you think of a book like Galatians, where he is um, he's not compromising. He's not budging. And so it seems like there's some issues that are worth that kind of resolve and and ballast. And then there's other issues that we should be more circumspect about. And so that's the heart behind this. The, 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 the real heart is I just see so many churches, so many pastors, so many people who tend to either treat everything as if it is a hill to die on or nothing as if it's a hill to die on. We tend toward one of those or the other, I think. And uh, hopefully this book will help us. Uh, just be more reflective about where do we draw those boundaries and how do we find more balanced posture? Yeah, you know, I, I see um, on on social media in particular, and and of course, you know, I think um, social media is a, a, a blessing and a curse. Um, you know, like anything, it's just, you know, it's a neutral tool that can be used in a variety of ways. But I've been distressed, as many others have been as well, about um, really kind of the labeling of 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 people as as false teachers or heretics, that word gets used quite a bit. That's heresy, and you know those are are you know good words to be used in good ways, and yet many times they're you know we see them kind of thrown around on what we might would consider. I think what most people should consider secondary or tertiary issues. Do you think a a, a failure to do theological triage is kind of a major you know contrib uh, uh, you know, contributor to the villainizing that we see on, on social media? Yes, it, it certainly seems like it is. Um, you know, I, I've been reading a lot from Jonathan Haidt, who is a sort of secular psychologist who talks a lot about polarization happening in our culture and kind of the sociology of disagreement and why it is that we tend to be so tribal and we tend to kind of clump up with our little group and, and then demonize the opposition. There's a, a human tendency toward that. And it seems like that's happening in a major way in our culture. And um, my hope and and what I would think would be uh, what we, we would pray for and aim for would be that the church would be an alternative to that and that we would have a witness of what it looks like to even in the midst of disagreement, 
kind of have a measured, respectful way of uh, categorizing the issues and speaking to one another. And I don't know how much it's just social media that amplifies things, but it seems as though sometimes the church is just as polarizing and Christians can be just as nasty and just as just mean. I mean, there's just so much meanness out there right now. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, some of it doesn't even seem like, you know, I think the doctrinal concern many times in, in these instances is kind of a, you know, obfuscation of what's really going on. There's a, you know, either a sense of insecurity or fear or just a residual anger about something being excluded or, um you know, minimized, you know, oneself or, or, or not taking seriously. And then the doctrinal kind of battleground becomes the facade where that has worked out. I, I certainly think on, on the surface of it, at least there really is just this failure to, to make, you know, the right connections or the right, you know, prioritizations of, of doctrines. I remember, you know, well-known Bible teacher, um, by, uh, some uh, beloved by others, really reviled and called a false teacher. And I remember thinking, okay, let me just r- read the evidence. I, I don't, I don't think you know false teaching is in play here. Um, but you know, there was a link promising to unveil all of the all of the heresies of this person. And so I clicked over. I, I, you know, open-mindedly, I'm reading, you know, the evidence. And there were some things that I disagreed with. There were some things I thought maybe were unwise that were in this teacher's you know, ministry. But there was nothing that qualified as an assault on first order doctrines. It was all secondary and what mostly tertiary type things. Um, and in a minute, I want to ask you about you know, how we determine what goes in those categories. But I just see, yeah, kind of the conflation of them where any disagreement becomes kind of the the grounds for demonization. Did anything like that play into, in the book, you talk about your own journey kind of in, in sorting these out, secondary and tertiary issues. Um, you, you, you tell your story there. Was a concern about mislabeling a part of that, or was it just more of a, a gradual academic kind of uh, pursuit? Uh, it, it's very much not just an academic thought. This book really comes out of my experiences and observations uh, as a pastor. I mean, several of the other books that I've worked on are more academic. They, they really come out of my just working at it in the library. This one really comes out of pastoral experiences, ministry experiences. And uh, I, I do think that it's a practical issue. I think every pastor, in fact, even every Christian, I think will have to think through how do I rank different issues? You know, how, how do I partner with people where we have disagreements um, what's the right label to use for particular errors? It's extremely practical. And I think the reason I care so much about it is um, it really does affect how the kingdom of God advances. You know, there can be real collateral damage when we either overemphasize uh, tertiary issues or we are soft or uh, kind of mute about first rank issues. And so that balanced mentality just seems so important, especially these days. What were some of the things that you uh, sorted through on on your own kind of road towards, you know, putting things in the right categories? Well, um, I try not to start off with the specifics in the book because 
I really don't want the book to be about the issues so much as about <laughs> the principles. You know what and I mean? And you don't want someone who disagrees with you to write you off, probably. <laughs> yeah, it's so. <laughs> I mean, that's that's part of this. You know, as soon as a disagreement comes up, it can complicate your relationship with someone. But I'll mention one specific, and that's I've really agonized at a kind of existential level through studying the doctrine of creation, and that's been painful. Um, it's been an issue where, based upon where I land, um, it's it's led to distance with certain ministries, certain people who, and I've just found that you know sometimes it seems as though there's a sense of suspicion that can come in so quickly. And whereas the hope would be that we're able to talk through the differences, assuming the best motives in the other party. And sometimes we don't do that. Sometimes there's a, a very quick suspicion that uh, we might know the motive of the other person is not not a good motive. So um, that's been tough. I mean, uh, and my interest in that has been that it seems as though we're getting more polarized on an issue like that. There are certain views that are required in many, many circles today that honestly, you know, you could find some of the most conservative Protestant Christians from people like Jay Gresham Machen and others, kind of the figureheads for conservative Protestant Christianity who wouldn't be acceptable today based upon <laughs> right. where they're at. And it's like, hey, wait a second, something's happening here where we're getting more polarized. Yeah, more conservative than Machen is is uh, an interesting <laughs> place to find oneself. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways, well, not in a, in a lot of ways, but theological triage um, is kind of a callback or at least, you know, brings to mind the old dictum. I'm not sure who's the, you know, or originator of the quote, but in essentials, unity and non-essentials, liberty and in all things, charity. Maybe our our our, our guest, Gavin, can, um, you know, clue us into who actually said that. Um, but how do you know? Right. I mean, that's kind of where it the rubber hits the road for us is. How do I know what's an essential? Well, how do I know what's not essential? You know, how do you know what's a first, second, third, fourth order doctrine? What are some ways of identifying those things? Okay. Well, I did look up that statement because I've always been curious who said <laughs> that. And my the best of my ability to tell it's um, attributed to Augustine, but wrongly right. so. I, I think it came actually much later, sometime in the 17th century. Um, but um, it's a great sentiment. I think part of what are the, one of the things I'm working through in the book is um, it's good to distinguish between the essentials and the non-essentials. But I have seen some people who, based on that distinction, all the non-essentials kind of get clumped together is not very important or is not needing to be thought about. So right. part of the reason I'm trying to think with four categories, and that's just one way of doing it. I'm, there's many others that could be done as well is just to say, even if something's not necessarily essential to the gospel, it's not like the boundaries of orthodoxy, doesn't necessarily mean that it's unimportant. It can be important in, in various ways. And so we're trying to kind of have a, a way to prioritize those. So the, the second rank issues often are those that um, might determine what church or what denomination you're involved in. And then third rank issues would be issues that they're important, but they we don't need to divide over. We can be a part of the same church, the same institution. And then fourth rank doctrines are just things that don't matter at all. And um, I, I walk through a, a number of criteria in the book. It's not a, a, like a math equation. You know, it's not like crunching the numbers. One of the things I try to emphasize, because I really believe this, is that it's a practical judgment based upon real life factors. It's not just a matter of being technically correct. Doing triage and ranking doctrines is a matter of wisdom and prayer and 
you know, the driving question is always what will be pleasing to Jesus, what will be useful for the church, what will be edifying for God's people. And that can change a little bit, you know, in one context to another. But some of the criteria in the book that I give are, um, uh, number one, how clearly is a doctrine taught in the Bible? Um, another one is how um, how closely connected is it to the gospel? Another is how practically relevant is it in the in the practice of the church? And another is what's the testimony of other Christians from other places and other times? So those are kind of four starter questions to try to try to rank issues. That's good. Wouldn't you say that there are even within um, certain, you know, umbrella doctrines levels of this, right? So even just thinking like in terms of soteriology, justification by grace through faith, that would be a first order doctrine. And yet when we get into kind of the mechanics, perhaps uh, for lack of a better phrase, um, you know, Calvinism versus Arminianism and all those sorts of things, where you land there would not be a first order doctrine. So even within certain categories, there are levels of importance, wouldn't you say? <clears throat> yes, exactly. Yeah, because if we say that, you know, every nuance of justification is first rank, then we end up saying either St. Augustine or John Calvin is a heretic because <laughs> they did not right. agree on all the details. And uh, Augustine and many in the early church wouldn't have thought of justification as um, a distinct reality from sanctification. So even on some pretty important things like that. But I, I in the book, I do say that the basic heart of justification, the basic idea that we're accepted by God on terms of grace is a first rank issue. And, and I, I, ju I just get that from the book of Galatians, because Paul yeah. is so strident in that book. And it seems as though justification by faith versus justification by works is the, the issue there. Yeah, it's it's um, astounding to me how little sometimes the scriptures actually play in helping people prioritize. We're quick to kind of you know wield the Bible verses to bring out the proof texts in 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 defense of our own stridency, and yet there is you know a a, a contour to the you know biblical witness or the biblical testimony uh, to these doctrines as well that should help shape kind of the level of um, yeah. Well, what hills we're willing to die on, right? Mm -hmm. And in, in Galatians, you certainly see uh, that there's a hill that Paul is is willing to die on, and and not just there, but in other places as well. Um, you talk about some of the dangers uh, of not doing theological triage in your book. Why don't you share what some of those dangers might be? Well, one of the dangers that I talk about is uh, a sectarianism. Um, by which I mean unnecessary division from other Christians. And then another one on the opposite side is, is minimalism, which is where we just want to reduce everything down to kind of the common denominator. And um, the, the reason sectarianism is such a, a concern for me is that, and I actually grew to appreciate this more while working on the book, um, is that our unity as the people of God is really important. Um, it's it's hugely emphasized in the New Testament. And sometimes Christians, especially more conservative uh, evangelical Christians, who maybe the, the idea of being ecumenical uh, is a suspicious concept because of ways we've seen that pursued. Um, and so we don't have a, a real lively concern for that. But the fact remains, Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would be one and that and he prays that so that the world would believe that the Father has sent him. And we see the Apostle Paul calling in Philippians 2 for this kind of incredible 
humility toward one another and service toward one another. And I think sometimes those who are so quick to fight over doctrine forget that that's one of the doctrines that the New Testament calls us to. We should be um, long-suffering in our patience for one another. For every true Christian, there should be a, a love in our hearts, even amidst disagreement, even if we cannot be a part of the same church. There should be a desire to love this person, to grow in relationship. And that's really hard sometimes, especially if there have been wounds or splits that have been painful. Um, I don't think that love means the absence of accountability or the absence of rebuke. But I do think that um, one of the things I find helpful in, in my own thinking is when there's been a Christian who has hurt me or um, th that I'm very concerned about what they're doing, to picture them in heaven and pray for them in light of that, because I know ultimately God is going to bring them into glorification and perfect joy in himself. And I want to relate to that person in light of how God sees them. And so that value of, of loving every other true Christian is, is so um, important. At the same time, we don't want to downplay truth. And so those are the two values that make this kind of a complicated task. What you just said there, I think is so valuable. I remember, I think it was uh, Desiring God Conference, probably six or seven years ago, um, hearing Sinclair Ferguson say something from the stage along the lines of, you know, who am I to, you know, reject embracing one whom Christ is united to himself. Mm -hmm. And I just found that so convicting and so startling. And it really puts, you know, some of these, you know, levels of disagreement in, in, in perspective that, um, if, if I can affirm the, um, you know, the union with Christ of someone, if I can, you know, affirm the testimony of someone, the genuineness of their faith, then it really makes my willingness to, or my eagerness even to, to demon, you know, to villainize them or separate myself from them or, or what have you. Um, it, it, it really makes it look petty and it really makes it look like perhaps I have higher standards in the Lord. Maybe <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's just really graceless, I, I suppose. Yeah. The, yeah. I can, I mean, I, I've been just thinking about that so much in the context of working on this book, because especially in light of what we were saying earlier about social media and the divisions and so forth, there's a great Spurgeon quote where he's talking about his disagreements with George Herbert about church government. And he's, he's very blunt about how much he dislikes Herbert's view. But then he talks about how we have the responsibility to love every person that Jesus loves and has accepted. And he says we should have a warm corner in our heart for every true Christian. And I found that a really helpful phrase to go back to just in my own heart and mind is no matter what else is going on, I want to cultivate a warm corner in my heart for everyone who is among the family of God, who is of the people of Christ. Um, because whatever other disagreements we might have, we are part of the same spiritual family. Jesus has shed his blood for this person. We will inherit heaven together, and we want to relate to each other in light of that. One of the things we try to do on the podcast, because we have so many pastors and ministry leaders who listen, is really kind of bring in a, an application to the subject of the day. And one of the things that comes up um, quite frequently is really in terms of doctrinal subscription within a church, within um, you know a local church, would you, what are your thoughts on requiring elders or, or even non-elders who are teaching um, to subscribe to a doctrinal statement or doctrinal formulations beyond what members 
must subscribe to. Do you think that's um, helpful or unhelpful uh, for local churches to employ? I've been thinking a lot about that, and obviously it depends upon what the statements are. But in general, I do think there's a lot of wisdom in at least considering that. Um, Sometimes we have one statement of faith that just works across the board for membership and then every other office within the church. And um, part of one of the things I've actually thought a lot about on this topic is whether we need to loosen some of our church membership requirements, because sometimes we have things in those statements. I mean, it it obviously depends on every different church is different. Sure. But there's a lot of churches that have a lot of specifics. And I would see membership as a more basic uh, commitment where, you know, when a church recognizes someone as a member, they don't have to have perfect theology and they don't even have to agree with the pastor on everything. Um, For a member, we want to know that they're a Christian. They have trusted in Christ. And then practically, we want to know that they're willing to serve the church, support the church, you know, um, attend regularly and so forth. But it's not necessary to know every little detail about their theology. We'll want to be transparent about, you know, where we stand as a church, what we practice. And there may be some things that are in the kind of second rank category that we want to work through at that level. But when you're talking about an elder, it just seems as though, especially a teaching elder, that's a much uh, higher bar. And so um, there are different expressions of unity and different uh, kinds of criteria that seem like they make sense for those different expressions. And to me, it makes a lot of sense. And I, I think it'd be healthy for churches to at least consider that. Uh, do we, do we, is there any ways we could be more accommodating at the membership level um, or, or more scrutinizing at the elder level? To me, that, that's, that makes sense. Yeah. It could, you know, reflect um, sort of a united front that there's no confusion about uh, from the, you know, teaching perspective, you don't have, you know, one teacher saying one thing and another teacher saying another thing. Um, I, you know, I, I think there could be some good in that actually to see, you know, uh, diversity of viewpoints among, um, you know, authority figures, respected um, authority figures. That's kind of the approach I, you know, took at my last church as well. In fact, I had one elder candidate who was reluctant to come in because he disagreed with most of the other elders on what we would consider a tertiary issue. It wasn't even a, you know, um, uh, a secondary type issue, but he, he thought it was important that, you know, the, all the elders be in agreement on, on this particular issue. And I told him, I didn't think that that was necessary. And in fact, it might could even be a healthy representation to have elders who charitably and lovingly, uh, you know, disagree can, you know, can represent different viewpoints. Um, you know, but he was afraid that it, it would cause confusion. And so I, you know, I just wonder, you know, still processing through that, you know, certainly, um, you know, I've heard of some churches, for instance, in the convention that, you know, the Baptist faith, the message 2000, it has to be signed off by every member and, and every leader. But then beyond that, there's another, you know, maybe it's the, you know, second London Baptist confession or something that elders have to agree to as well. And it's just a means of kind of providing a unified, um, uh, you know, front there. Um, Gavin, wh- what do you hope for with this book? What do you, you know, what are your dreams for how this book could bless the church? I think the deepest hope is that it would help us um, toward what we were talking about just a few moments ago, the love that we should have for every other true Christian without uh, downplaying the importance of theology and doctrine and and becoming sort of minimalists. Uh, You know, many times the reaction against uh, an overly scrutinizing mentality about doctrine goes so far in the other extreme that we 
sort of down. We just don't want to talk about theology. And I've heard people talk like that, you know, doctrine divides. Um, let's just stay away from those issues. And so without going to that extreme, the hope is my deepest hope is that it would encourage Christians to cultivate love and respectfulness, courtesy, uh, humility, graciousness in the way that we uh, relate to other Christians, particularly those with whom we may have a disagreement. I know that's painful at times. I don't pretend that that's easy. I know that that's complicated and awkward at times, but I think it's so important. I mean, that what you just mentioned about having different pastors in the church who may disagree on something, to me, that's such an encouraging thought. If we could model that to our people, say, you know, we see this differently, but then we model a respectful uh, dialogue about it where we're not pulling apart, we're not attacking each other. I just think in our current cultural moment, as the Church of Jesus Christ, we need to do better at that. We need to learn how to talk about our differences respectfully and graciously, even when a rebuke is necessary, even when a strong stand is necessary. Nonetheless, we still have to have that warm corner in our hearts. Absolutely. That's such a good word. We've been speaking with Gavin Ortland, senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Ojai in Ojai, California. He's author of the new book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, The Case for Theological Triage. It's published by Crossway. It's a really important book. I was glad to endorse it and to say it was important myself in my endorsement. Uh, You can pick it up wherever good books are sold. Gavin, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, brother. Hey, thanks for having me, Jared. As always, dear listener, if you like the podcast, please share us with your friends, review us on iTunes. Every little bit helps. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church. 